over the next uh, number of weeks is I want to give you a little bit of a background and an understanding of the Tanya. The Tanya is the, the, the seminal work of the Hasidic or the Chabad Hasidic philosophy. And also when it comes to Kabbalah itself, um, majority of the, the Tanya really goes through the concepts in Kabbalah in a way that could be feasible and understandable for the average person. So I'll give you a little bit of a background on why this was written and what was going on in the world when the Tanya was written. This was, so basically, uh, have you ever heard of the Chemoniki pogroms? The Chemoniki pogroms. So the, the Polish, the Poles went after the Russians. This is about uh, 350 years ago. There was a Polish-Russian war. Poles went after the Russians. The Russians obviously go after the Russians. They came after the Poles with a vengeance. And they retreated the Poles back into Poland. But as the Poles retreated, since they were so upset about the defeat, they went through town and town that, of Jewish life and destroyed it and just killed everybody. And so it was called the Chemoniki Pogroms. There was a tremendous pogrom. Mm-hmm. Over a million Jews were killed during that time. And majority of the Jews of Poland, and I would say also many parts of Russia, were devastated. Nobody didn't have people they lost. It was just, this was, it was just a devastating time for, for the Jewish people. And a lot of the rabbis of the era didn't really have any good answers for the people. You're talking about a people who lived in a world of a lot of what? You do this, you do that. They weren't knowledgeable, they weren't brilliant, they didn't have time to study. And so it depended very much on the rabbis to be able to provide that insight for them. And when they asked why, the rabbis didn't give them answers. And the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, was a very young man at the time, and he went through town and townlet of Jewish life and started inspiring the people, but more than anything, he had the whys. And he really like reinvigorated a, a, a downtrodden Jewish community of Poland. And he did this for about 20 years until later on he ended up you know, becoming the great leader. He founded the Hasidic movement. And that's why if you look you know, afterwards, for about 200 years afterwards in Russia and Poland, majority of the Jews were Hasidic. That's the basic story. He had a successor after he passed away. His name was uh, the Magid of Mezrich, Reb Dovber, who had a successor who was Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi, who was the Alter Rebbe who wrote this book. Now, the, the Tanya, it opens with the title page where Rabbi Shneir Zalman shares the book's mission statement. But instead of calling it the Tanya, he calls it Sefer Shel Benunim. Remember, we, started, we ended off last week trying to understand what is a Benunim, which is the book of the average person. Now, it seems pretty much insulting. Only average? Are we only aspiring to be average? Is that the goal? So are, are you saying to us, Rabbi Shneer Zaman, the best you can be is an average person? Mm-hmm. Rabbi Shneer Zaman had written a book called Shefer, uh, Sefer Shal Sadikim, the book of the righteous, but it was burned. So we don't have it. So the answer is Yes. That is what we average. The title page of Atanya starts off with the mission statement is Kikarov Alacha Hadavar Meod Beficha Uvilvavcha Lasoso. That it is it is close to you. 
it is in your heart to do. We, as human beings, feel a certain separation between ourselves and perhaps the studies that we usually study. You're studying to be a doctor. Okay, that's the studies that I study, but I don't feel like it's one with me. The problem with being separated from the studies that we study is that eventually we become dis, disconnected from the study, from life, from the world. And to a certain extent, we kind of look at the world from afar. We're not seeing the world from within. We're not seeing it from who we are as individuals. We're seeing it from afar. So what the Baal Shem Tov and later what Rabbi Shner Zaman really wanted is that things should be close to us. We should feel connected. So we study something, it should lead us to do. It should inspire our hearts and it should lead us to do. It is not just, oh, I'm studying it and it's a beautiful idea. Uh, the Greek uh, education, conveying of a message, oh, that was a great study. No, that, that the study that we study should inspire us to do something about it. Not to become disconnected or desensitized, but to become resensitized and reconnected to ourselves and to the material by acting on, on, on what it is that we study. So the first question is, who am I? Am I nurture in nature? Am I, am I a result of my nature plus my nurture? Am I the Freudian inner child? Who am I? Because if we don't understand who we are, then we can't understand where we're going and what we're supposed to be. So the basic breakdown is there are, there are three categories. There are really five categories, but we're going to start off with just three categories. That's Sadiq, the Russia, and the Benini. What's the first thing you think of when you hear the categories Sadiq, Russia, and Benini? Basically, righteous, wicked, and average. I would say that most people envision that Sadiq is someone who does many righteous deeds and few bad ones. The Russia does very few good deeds and many evil ones. And then comes the Bainini. The Bainini is somewhere in the middle, this 50-50 balance. This is the common, I would say, familiar use of these terms of Sadiq, Russia, and Bainini. And even the Talmud uses these terms when discussing how all of us are judged by God according to our deeds on Rosh Hashanah. So, in a Talmudic sense, that's what it is. I do a little more good, a little less good. Uh, today, I had a Russia day. Today, I had a Tzaddik day. And today, I would say, if I had to do a thing today, okay, I, I did a 50-50, I'll call myself a Benini. But if you delve deeper, we would see that these commonly held definitions are actually simple and superficial meanings. Because in truth, the tzaddik, the rasha, and the benini mean something much more comprehensive. So every concept in the Torah can be understood on many levels. And by nature, we're, we constantly seek out the deepest explanation and the innermost understanding. So in this sense, the Torah is very similar to a person. We are comprised of a body and a soul, external and inner dimensions, and so are the levels of the Torah, and especially the levels of the Torah's comprehension. When we encounter another person, we know that there is more to that person than just their outer appearance. 
if we want to strive to know the individual, to reach out to their inner soul, we have to go beyond the superficial. And the same goes for the Torah and Kabbalah. And it's many levels of explanations. So, let's talk about names. When we describe a smart person as being clever as a fox, does that mean that the smart person walks on four legs, is furry, and has a tail like a fox? Of course, it's not what we mean. So the same thinking applies when we call someone a tzaddik. Is that who the person truly is? Or are we using the word to describe the fact that this person just did something nice for us? Or fulfilled a mitzvah? Or performed a good deed? So the term that we're using is what we're going to call a borrowed idea. For example, if you're smart as a fox, the idea of the cunning fox, or if you're righteous as a tzaddik, it's the idea of this borrowed description of a particular aspect of that individual's character. But not that they are, in fact, a fox or a tzaddik. Now, in contrast to this, there are accurate names. The borrowed name in Kabbalah is called Shem HaMushal, which means a metaphorical name, a metaphor name. An accurate name would be called Shem HaEtzem, the name of the essence. When we call someone, let's say, a chacham, a wise person, which actually, funny enough, in our society is used as like a, ah, that chacham. It's used in a derogatory term. Smart aleck. Smart aleck. But when we call someone a, a wise person and intend it as an accurate description of the essence of this person, we mean that they're truly a chacham. They're truly wise. In everything they do, just as we call a person who practices medicine a doctor. The Tanya refers to these as accurate names. When we apply the accurate name tzaddik to someone, it means that this is their entire essence and it finds expression in everything they do. Exactly. So now we open up the truth of it. How many tzaddikim are there? But at least we understand that this level of tzaddik is not just, oh, today I'm righteous and tomorrow I'm a rasha. But the tzaddik is actually the term that is accurate for this person through and through and through. At least now we're able to create the proper barriers. If a tzaddik is so, then a rasha, you can imagine, has also an accurate terminology to it. And then the benini also has an accurate terminology to it. So in order to truly understand these terminologies, we have to start understanding the idea of inner versus superficial. So the difference between the way that tzaddik is commonly used and its precise definition See, according to the Torah, or the Torah's simple and basic level of interpretation, a person is judged only according to their deeds, that which we can see on the surface. So it would be somewhat, the deed we'd say is somewhat superficial. As such, all they have to do is perform more mitzvot than sins to be considered a tzaddik. If you tip the scale, then you're a tzaddik. It's that simple. Weigh the sins against the mitzvot. That would be a very basic, I would say even an elementary mm-hmm. way of looking at the world. And a way that actually a lot of people, especially people who are raised with Jewish theology, do look at the world. Mm-hmm. But the accurate usage of the title tzaddik means that the person is a tzaddik. 
in their entire essence, in their entire being, who they are through and through is a tzaddik. So according to this more deeper and more inner level of interpretation, a person is measured by their true nature, which means we now have a completely different scale for judging who was tzaddik and who was a benini. But before we can comprehend this new scale or, or start progressing on the path of righteousness, we have to know more about who we are, which means the makeup of our inner world, the parts of our psyche and the nature of our soul. So if you want to really start understanding this idea of tzaddik, Russia, and Benini, then we're going to have to understand the structure of the soul. Because all we know today is a superficial version of it. So we used to judge it by mitzvot. Oh, that person, that person's a tzaddik. Look at what kind of good deeds they do. But it's superficial. The same way you can say that person looks nice or that person doesn't look nice. It's just being observant and saying, or, and how do you know? Do you see the person every single day? Do you see them all day? Do you, even if you do see them all day, every day, do you really know what's going on in their head? Do you really know what's going on? There are couples who are married for years who, who don't really know what's going on in each other's heads because they haven't had that conversation. So if you want to talk essence, then we have to talk soul. We have to talk about the structure of the soul. So the Tanya starts off with this fascinating discussion that each of, each of us has not just one, but two souls. It's unheard of in any other theology that I know of, and definitely any other Jewish theology, that there's two souls. The first soul is responsible for animating our bodies. And it's this soul that we sense and feel most of the time. It's also called the animal soul. This doesn't mean that we're literally animals. God forbid. This is just the name that describes the inner essence, which is animalistic and driven by physical needs and desires. Animals, using this metaphor. Animals are primarily worried only about themselves. They spend most of their time in pursuit of material, in pursuit of physical things, eating, sleeping, etc. This makes the animal soul's force chiefly itself. It sees itself as the center of the world, and therefore it believes that everything exists for it, and it deserves everything. Sometimes this nature is crude, expressions, and the crude is expressed outright in words and actions, without the sugarcoating, and other times it acts more subtly, with tact, and without brazenness. But either way, this nature is always present. I would say in modern language, we would associate the soul with ego. As someone once said, ego stands for edging God out. The animal soul drives a person to be primarily concerned with themselves and act completely out of self-interest. Now, it may sound like we're being harsh. But what would we answer if we take an honest, deep look at ourselves and ask, 
Would I do something for someone else before I do it for myself? Am I willing to give to others even if I get nothing out of it? Am I willing to sacrifice for others without receiving money, without receiving honor, without receiving even satisfaction or, or a compliment for what I did? So to a certain extent, even our quote-unquote altruism is really ego, animal. So, and it's normal because it's natural part of ourselves. We're not, we're not saying that it's, don't think of it as negative. Right. It's not an evil soul. It's just a natural soul. It's the closest to us. It's our animal. Mm-hmm. But imagine we only had this. If we only had this, we'd be no different than an animal. There needs to be something that separates us from the animal. So try this. Test yourself by trying to go an entire day without saying the words me or I. By thinking about others instead of yourself. Just just be conscious of the word me or I. The only, the reason why it's impossible is look at the language. The language that we know best is English. What is the only letter that is always capitalized by itself? The I. But not in Hebrew. Not in Hebrew. (laughs) Not in Hebrew, but in English. But that is very telling of our society. That the I always has to be capitalized. And let's say you want to have a lowercase I day. So you go on your Microsoft Word and you start typing only lowercase says, what happens when you press spacebar? It auto-capitalizes. Mm-hmm. It's like the world says to you, oh, you want to be humble? You want to try to have a lowercase i? We'll tell you what your lowercase i is. We're going to auto-capitalize it for you. So we have to be conscious that our society is the society of the capital I. But that is not the best way to live. The proof is that over 30% of our society is on some kind of antidepressant or, or, or some kind of drug, having a, a mood-changing drug. So it's so funny. We are the best society in history. We have more money and more security than we've ever had, Western society, in 2019, yet we're more depressed and we're sadder and we can't find happiness. I would say this is a great example of the capital I not working. Is that accurate, the percentage of people that are on? Uh, yeah. I mean, I know it's high, but I didn't think 30. In the US, in the US. Okay, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it is in Canada. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely, yeah. I don't think we are, we're any better. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's 30% of the population have or has been on a. Like, one out of five, Oh, is, is that? Have mental health issues. Like I heard one out of five. Lifetime. Yeah, one out of five. Okay. At some point in your life. Yeah. Anyway, one out of five is still a lot. It's very high. It's very high. And then you have all the people that self-medicate, right? That, that doesn't include the self-medicated I'm people. I'm saying, like, you know, the people that, you know, they drink and drug and whatever, like all sorts of... Things. It's something to think about. Yeah. This capital I society. So now the Tanya asks, I would say the first of its controversial questions. Is it possible to overcome our animal nature? Now, in order to ask this question, you have to decide that the animal nature is not the right way to live. And that's a very big deal all on its own. So the animal soul is the source of all our negative personality traits. 
I'm angry because someone bruised my ego. I'm jealous because my ego is threatened. I even love a particular person because of my own ego. If this is the case, then even the love that we express towards others can bounce back at us like a boomerang seek, and seek vengeance against us because we really acted not out of love for another, but out of self-love, thinking about what we got out of the relationship and not out of the true care and concern for the other person. If we enter the relationship trying to ask, what am I going to get from it? What's in it for me? Well, it's like a business. Exactly. Worse than a business. It's like a, a, a fraud. You enter a relationship for what you can give, not for what you can get. If you want to be in a relationship for what you can get, then you should be in a relationship with yourself. Get married to yourself. Then you know what you can give and get. You enter a relationship for what you can give to that relationship. If you're always living in this tit-for-tat world where you think, well, oh my gosh, you know what I gave to him and, and he hasn't given back to me in a few days. Well, what ends up happening is it's a convoluted world. So I think we can safely assume that every reasonable person who wants to grow would like to break free of this animalistic cycle. Which the Tanya believes, and I can say I believe as well, without using the capital I, that it's the heart of all of our problems. The animal soul is responsible for the blockages and interference we encounter in all we do. This self-interest will not let go and not let us progress spiritually in life. So the first thing we have to do is we have to come to this understanding that the animal soul is not the way to live. That's difficult because it means that we'd have to say that all those hours that we're binge-watching Netflix is animalistic. And all the times that we are, instead of eating uh, a little bit of ice cream, we eat the tub of ice cream, that's animalistic. Or even the little bit of ice cream is animalistic. And I know it's comforting, but we have to decide at that moment that that is not the right way to live. As long as the animal soul gives us more gains than losses, we're not going to desire to rupture that relationship. Because it is a very comforting relationship. And most of all, a very selfish relationship. I mean, you need some of that relationship to, to live. You can't we're, wipe it out completely. Absolutely. We're not saying wipe it yeah, out. Okay. We're not saying wipe it out. We're saying don't govern my life. Okay. Right now, it could be that my life is primarily governed by my animal soul. What I'm saying what Tanya is saying is that don't let the animal soul govern your life. We're going to find a place for it. Once, but the first thing we have to do, as Maimonides said, is if you want to find the balance, you have to go to the opposite extreme. So the first thing we have to do is we have to say, no, this is not going to be first order change. This is going to be second order change. And second order change means I have to change my entire nature and everything about me. I am not going to be a selfish brat anymore. There's a lot to lose. You have to have more losses than gains. And that's very difficult because a relationship with our animal soul governing our lives has a lot more gains than losses on a very practical, very physical level. It feels good. It's protecting our self-identity. It's protecting our self-esteem. 
it's hard to even start that relationship. So when I said this is controversial, it's controversial because it means that I have to say that the way that I'm living my life right now, I'm not happy with. Even though it's comfortable. And even though it's easy. And even though I think I'm protecting my self-identity. And even though I may even have a healthy self-esteem. It's still not okay. And I have to want to rupture that relationship with myself. So let's introduce the second soul. The second soul is called the godly soul. Without it, we would be hopeless. Our entire life would be exclusively focused on our ego. The moment you bring the godly soul into the picture, its presence changes everything. The Tanya says this soul, the godly soul, is literally a part of God. It's a piece of God within us. It's a very real piece of God that comes into this world, embedded within us. The soul is selfless, completely selfless, and desires only to be connected to its source, to be connected to God. So while the animal soul is always looking out for number one, the godly soul is completely selfless and has no desire at all for ego, for self, for selfishness. It only wants to connect to God always. The way these two souls behave inside of us can be compared to the two parts of the candle, the wax and the flame. On one hand, the flame rises upward toward its source, the supernal source of fire, which is why flames will always reach upward regardless of how the candle is held. The flame wants to rise, and it's willing to give up its very existence for it. Think about a candle in the wind. The flame will go out if it's not able to rise. At the same time, the wax drips down. The same tendencies are found in our two souls. The godly soul longs for an even deeper connection with the creator, while the animal soul pulls us downward with a single-minded interest in meeting its needs and enjoying the pleasures of the world. The Tanya continues by explaining what's going on, that these two souls wage an intense, constant battle deep within us. Yet, they strike a different balance in each person. I think this description provides us with new parameters for understanding who was a tzaddik and who was a rasha and who was a benini. The benini is actually on such a high level that we're grateful if we reach this level. In a tzaddik, in a righteous person, the battle between two souls is over the winner is the godly soul. Which means that the tzaddik has subdued the animal soul 
took the animal soul prisoner and gave it a completely new identity. Not only has it stopped opposing the godly soul, it actually changed sides. As a result, the tzaddik never sins. Never sins. It only, the tzaddik only does good deeds and mitzvot throughout the day. The tzaddik has absolutely no desire and no interest in anything outside the realm of holiness, outside the realm of mitzvot. Even in the tzaddik's thoughts, there's nothing evil. And obviously in words and actions. So, based on this description, we would not want to aspire to be a tzaddik because it's virtually impossible. So, the Sefer Shel Tzaddikim, the book for the tzaddik, is not for us. Because that's not what we're aspiring to be. The book for, the, for, the, for us is the book of the Benini. And so here we open up the great question. What is the Benini? What is this average person? The Benini is obviously more complicated. According to Vitania, the Benini never sins and spends their entire day doing good deeds and mitzvot, just like a tzaddik. So why isn't the Benini considered a tzaddik? Well, the answer is found inside, deep within yeah. the Benini. The battle between the godly and animal souls not only continues to rage on, but it gets even more intense with time. The Benini's drive in life is not pure and focused like the tzaddik's. The Benini is distracted by attraction to physical things. However, each round of the battle ends with a decisive win for the godly soul. No sins in action and deed. So in terms of the Benini's behavior, the Benini remains someone who never sinned. But in thought, in thought, the Benini is constantly in battle. In fact, the very notion of sin, even the tiniest of sins, is completely foreign to the Benini. In the same way that we would never consider committing murder, God forbid. Just as it's perfectly clear to us that all the money in the world couldn't get us to murder someone, so is committing even the slightest sin totally foreign to the Benini. Just as a normal person would never willingly ingest poison because of our deep innate desire to stay alive, the same is true with the Benini would never commit a sin for the Benini's deep, intense desire to stay spiritually alive. The Benini sees sin as a spiritual poison. So the Benini's level of knowledge, the Benini's level of awareness and self-control is so great that the Benini is able to maintain constant control over their urges despite the raging inner battle. The Benini is the absolute boss when it comes to the deeds that the Benini performs, the words they say and the thoughts they think. It sounds like a tzaddik, but it's not. Because there's still this inner struggle and it's constant. But the Benini is able to win every battle and exercise full Control over thought, speech, and action. What if they're only at 90%? Then they're 90% Benini. Okay. 
the point is, the point is, that, well, they're, 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 they're potentially Bainini. Okay. The point is, is that the Bainini becomes this, it's reachable by every person, if you want. You could reach this level. And that's why it's so important. And it becomes the, the, the quintessential way to live. Because you're always working. Because you're always working. working. on yourself. That's right. And obviously over time, right. the battle will get more intense. But your ability to subdue the evil is going to become more intense. Because you're going to, it's like, a, it's like a, an exercise. You're going to get good at it. Or better at it. Mm-hmm. The war is going to continue to go on. But the Bainini has not yet completely uprooted the natural attraction to the worldly physical pleasures. And the point is like this, and the Alter Rebbe knows this, and that's why Vatanya is so important, is that we will always have an attraction to the physical world. We're not saying uproot your animal. We're saying subdue the animal. The attraction is always going to exist. The desire the desire will always exist. What, what, what does benani mean? Does that mean like sex the, myself? The, no, benoni is the intermediate. The, the, the benoni, in between. Okay, right, I was thinking like with like the shirt. Oh, like the ben. Yeah, ben. Ben, ben. No, benoni is, ben, benoni is like in, in between. In between. The okay, intermediate, ben. the okay, average. Okay. So now let's just kind of, we got the tzaddik. We're, we're kind of mapping out this Bainani, but let's get the other side. Who is the Russia? Mm-hmm. So it's clear to us that the Russia is more than we traditionally believed because, well, if you're not a Bainani, then you're a Russia. So the Russia is not necessarily wicked or evil or mean, which is what we used to imagine. When using the definitions that speak to a person's inner reality, a Russia can actually be on a very high level. A Russia may only sin once a year. However, the lack of total self-control of the thoughts and the words and the actions can lead the Russia to lose the countless inner battles they face. At any moment, the evil inclination, the inner evil inclination, called the Yetzir Hara, has the potential to overcome the good inclination. Based on the state of this person's inner world, which may lead to expression in their thoughts and their words and their actions, this person is called a Russia. For the Russia... Drinking spiritual poison is not such a far-fetched idea. The Russia's commitment and loyalty to the king is still not yet 100%. It's possible for the Russia to give in to temptation, to falter. So it seems like this derogatory term, we call him Russia, but it's not a Russia like we used to think. A Russia is someone who we used to think sins all the time. That's not what a Russia is. A Russia defines the state of a person's inner world and where the person is holding in the battle between the two souls. Now, at this point of our study, we, pro- we probably would say something, oh, if only I could be a Bainani, like, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible. It's like this noble fantasy, a Bainani. Or maybe, you know, just this idea of moving in our spiritual life in that direction. According to Vatanya, that alone, just the thought of creating that second-order change is already a high level. Just saying, ah, oh, I aspire to be the vanity. 
my goal in life is to be a Bainini. Just that thought alone, that aspiration is already an amazing thing. Just the, 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 the idea of the head kind of lifting up, wanting to rise higher, the flame wanting to connect. And in the early chapters of Atanya, it helps us do just that. It starts by providing us practical tools for getting started on this path, moving in the right direction. To begin, the first thing we have to do is to understand the structure and makeup of each of the souls and how they operate. So Vatanya starts with the godly soul, discussing its essence, its faculties, its garments, its methods of expression, and the overall aspirations and desires. Then it analyzes the animal soul. And after discerning both of the souls, it's possible to better discern the interaction between the two. So what are the the little tricks? It says, don't beat back the darkness with a stick. That's not how you destroy darkness. If you light a candle and add more light, then the darkness flees on its own. That the darkness is really the absence of the light. And this is exactly the approach with the battle between the two souls. Instead of attacking your animal soul head on, increase the light of your godly soul the darkness of the animal soul will automatically disappear. That's why Vatanya is going to start by discussing the godly soul. Because the truth is that you don't really have to know the animal soul for two reasons. Number one, because the animal soul is so close to us that we don't have to know it because it's obvious, it's natural to us. We have to get to know the godly soul. And obviously... The animal soul itself, if we start increasing in our light, it just kind of dissipates. It's going to fight back. But our understanding and our appreciation for the godly soul is automatically going to start allowing the darkness to dissipate. So like inverse relation, like physical, and in physics... Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, let's conclude. When we identify with our godly soul, the world will start looking different. We're going to start seeing things differently. We're going to start interacting with people and ideas differently because we're interacting on a very different level, not on an ego-driven level. It's not a what can I get from it? How can I attain knowledge? How can I become smarter? It's not the capital I anymore. It's how can we achieve the purpose? How can we bring more light into this world? How can we aspire to be the Bainini? So the titles, Sadiq, Russia, and Benini can apply to a person's conduct alone or to the state of their inner world. And now, after we understand who we are, we can start understanding the makeup of our inner world and how we can choose the proper path. What do you think?
through the goodness we do, we bring more light into the world. Tell you a story. Reb Chaim was a chassid, lived about 200 years ago, and he made a living buying and selling merchandise in the European markets. Every free moment he had was devoted to the studying of Torah, doing a mitzvah, and once a year, he would travel to spend time with his Rebbe to fill up on inspiration and recharge a spiritual battery. This Reb Chaim was known as a scholar and a righteous man. And he was always greeted by the Rebbe with great respect. On Shabbat, they honored him by calling him up for the final Ali of the Torah, for the Maftir, which was a very special honor. And everyone knew Reb Chaim's Aliyah to the Torah would be followed by a generous contribution to the synagogue. On one trip, Chaim entered the Rebbe's private study for a yechidut for a private meeting. This highly precious soul-to-soul meeting, a time of deep connection between the Rebbe and the Chassid, the, the, the Rebbe and, the, and the, the mentee. When they were together, Chaim poured out his heart, telling his Rebbe of an extremely difficult challenge that he was facing in his Torah observance. He said, Every day, my service to God is disturbed. I'm hot-tempered, and I easily get angry. I easily get upset. He continued explaining to the Rebbe that he doesn't just get upset about big things. He even gets upset about small stuff. Everything sets him off. And when things don't go as planned, or people don't do what he asks of them, if he doesn't get his way, he blows up. And he finishes this heartfelt description and and eagerly waits for the Rebbe's response. Now, Chaim had been in this yechidut, had been in this private audience many times before, and he merited receiving answers and instructions in a variety of manners, but this time, This time was different. The Rebbe barely addressed the question. Instead, he waved his hand and he said, your problem is really a very small problem. It's insignificant. In fact, it's really not a problem at all. Now, Chaim was shocked. He'd waited a long time to tell his Rebbe this problem. And he wanted to hear a good solution. He didn't come for the Rebbe to say it wasn't a problem at all. He wanted to hear solutions. So he, he asks back, but Rebbe, for me, this is a big problem. I feel terrible every time I explode. And I do it again and again. The Rebbe waved his hand again. And he said, this is a very small issue. And really, it's not a problem at all. This Chaim refused to give up. He described a whole new problem. And again, he emphasized how hard it was for him and how it pains him and how it pained those around him. He says, Rebbe, maybe now you'll answer me. And again, the Rebbe says, this is a tiny problem. And in fact, it's really not a problem at all. And even a fourth time of explaining the problem, he got the same response. There was nothing left to do. He left the Rebbe's room. He was dejected. He was disappointed. He couldn't believe that he didn't get an answer. After Chaim left the room, the Rebbe called in his shamish, his attendant, and he instructed him to give Rebbe Chaim his customary honor of the maftir aliyah that Shabbat. But instead, this time, don't give him the aliyah, he said. Give him the galila, the tying of the Torah. 
after the, afterwards, which is a very uh, minor honor. The attendant was astonished by the Rebbe's request. I mean, he would be shocked. Whenever Reb Chaim would come to the synagogue, he would give a nice donation with his aliyah. He's going to be upset. Shabbat approached, and this attendant was worried about what he had to do, but the Rebbe said it. He has to do what the Rebbe said. So he decided it's best to tell the truth and warn him. So he met with Chaim, and he told him that he would be honored with Gilila, with the tying of the Torah instead of his traditional special honor, the maftir. Chaim began to complain, and he voiced his opposition. When the shamish explains, when the attendant explains that it was his directive straight from the Rebbe, he calmed down. Ah, the Rebbe must be testing me. Shabbat arrived, and the local Hasidim greeted Chaim. They assumed that he would have the usual honor and give his usual generous donation. Everyone was stunned when someone else was honored with the Maftir Aliyah. Mm-hmm. They all turned to look at Chaim, and their shock grew even greater when Chaim just stood there completely calm. Shortly afterward, when he was honored with Galila, the congregants were certain that Chaim would get angry. Yet he strode up to the Torah with a little smile on his face and a little song on his lips. He tied the Torah scroll quietly and returned to his seat. What's going on? Everyone wondered. When the prayers ended, Chaim remained in the synagogue to talk with the Rebbe. He approached him and the Rebbe smiled and Chaim smiled back. I see that your problem is not as great as you said it was, the Rebbe began. I tried to dishonor you in front of everyone, but you didn't get angry. Of course not, Rebbe. I didn't get angry because I knew it was a test from you. Now had they really wanted to make me angry, you can imagine how I would have reacted. Well, that was exactly my intention, the Rebbe said. Listen to me carefully. It is always just a test. God is constantly testing and assessing you. He sits up in heaven with all the angels who are watching you to see your reaction. The whole world looks very different when viewed from that perspective. God has many messengers, everyone around you. The people who annoy you, they're all his emissaries and part of a test. He's conducting this test to see your reaction. Always look at it this way and the world is going to appear completely different. You won't have to overcome your anger since you won't even have any reason to be angry, since you'll know it's always a test. When, when Chaim realized that the Rebbe was testing him to see if he would get angry, he was able to stay calm. This is what the Tanya is saying. If we look at our life through the lens of the animal soul, we become the center of attention. We become easily offended. We become easily angered. We become self-righteous. But when we wear the lens of the godly soul, everywhere we look, we see the divine providence. We see that God is personally overseeing every individual detail of our life, including the things that irritate us. So how do we react? In a godly way? or in an ego-centered way? And that becomes the core question of our lives. Are we going to know it's a test and remain calm? Or are we going to let go and get angered? What do you think? Life, you know, people get whatever irritated by all sorts of things. And, 